0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 445, featuring Amy Aniobi, who uh is a, a writer director executive producer uh when the show you probably know her the most for is the show insecure on hbo uh which is a really really cool show uh she's also done a lot of other amazing things including being the founder of super special inc which we get into uh but really great to talk to her especially about writing because that was really the theme of thu japan it was about writing uh which was really great to t- hear her perspective on that uh, she's a super brilliant person. She's also very, very funny and very, very sweet. And got to spend a lot of time with her besides in the podcast. But on the podcast itself, we got to hear her perspective on being a writer in Hollywood, uh, especially uh, from, um, from her as a person. As a, as, a, as, a, as a black woman in Hollywood, it's a little bit different, and she gets to explore what tells us a little bit about what that's like. Uh, we also got, this was before the strike was over that we recorded this because it's just recently, it seems to be over at this point. But uh, being able to talk to her, about the strike and finding out you know what her thoughts are on that uh and also we got to think talk about ai and her thoughts about what ai is going to do for her job or for writing in general uh in the hollywood system so pretty pretty interesting i do want to have a special note about uh, thu japan first of all it was absolutely amazing really really such an incredible event i was very very thankful to be there uh, thanks uh, to Andre and uh, Shuzo for, for doing the amazing work that they've done. But I do want to say specifically for this podcast, I want to have a special thanks uh, to Fabi, who uh, was an incredible person. She helped organize all the guests for me. But not only did she do that, she had gotten an entire film crew set up for us. And we had filmed this thing in, with like four cameras And it's like super professional. It has stepped up the game on the production of this podcast in such a huge, huge way. Uh, And I really want to thank Fabi for all of the amazing work she's done. So for the next several episodes that we've recorded at THU, you're going to see an extra high production value uh, compared to what you normally do on the podcast. And that is really thanks to her. I really felt a little bit like like Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes, (laughs) just sort of doing these interviews. And, you know, it's just really well done. I had to rethink all the editing, but it worked out really great so i really want to thank her for that uh okay we do have a couple of announcements our product announcement is uh uh, is vantage 2 update 1 is out and that is kind of a big deal for those of you who are interested in vantage as you guys know vantage is our real-time ray tracer Uh, but uh, update one involves something called ray reconstruction which is really really huge it's a completely different way of looking at denoising uh, we also involve DLSL, DLSS 3.5, which is an upscaler that is substantially different and, and really good uh, as well. So uh, if you do uh, do va- uh, Vantage 2 update one, make sure you update to the latest NVIDIA drivers, and you will see a massive increase in quality and speed. Uh, I was kind of blown away by it because it really kind of opens the door to a lot of different things that you can do in real-time ray tracing. Um, so definitely check that out. Okay, uh, I one or another announcements I want to make uh, is in terms of the events. Uh, you can go to chaos.com slash events for this. Uh, is I will be at the VIEW conference in Turin, Italy. I'm very excited about that. And it's going to be October 15th through the 20th. And not only will I be there, uh, not only will I be recording podcasts there, but I will also be a speaker, which I'm very excited about. So what will I be talking about? Well, I will actually be talking about My history with ray tracing, which leads to the history of GPU ray tracing and real-time ray tracing, which leads to my interest in virtual production and how real-time ray tracing will affect virtual production, which will lead to basically some very interesting work that we're doing over at the Chaos Innovation Lab with virtual production and Vantage, and uh, more specifically in-camera VFX. So it's got a lot of cool stuff that I'll be talking about, and I would love to see you there. So go ahead and check, if you're interested to go to that, go check out the VIEW conference. Uh, I hope to see you guys there. Okay. Now, if you guys want to know more about the podcast, of course, you can go to our podcast page. That is just chaos.com slash CG Garage. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, it is facebook.com slash CG Garage podcast. If you'd like to watch us, and as I said, it may be worth it to watch us because of the production value of these podcasts are really cool. Uh, just go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Now, of course, if you guys have suggestions, we've been getting a lot of great ones lately or feedback or any kind of thing of that nature, Email is the best way to do that and it's lads at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 445 with Amy and Yobi. Welcome to another CG garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays. In high dynamic range, we know that ambient occlusion is passé. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. All right, well, Amy, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been uh, looking into some of the stuff you've done, obviously. It's been amazing uh and i've got a lot of stuff to to talk about but before we get into mm-hmm. let's talk about your origin story i think it's pretty interesting how did this all start for you
1: yeah the career of being a writer yeah. director um uh, honestly i always say that it dates back to just my culture i'm nigerian and even though i was raised in texas i come from a very deep nigerian family and nigerians are storytellers it, it's right. a West African culture, the Griot culture, we tell stories. Mm-hmm. Also, if you've ever received a 409 letter, you know we tell stories. Right. <laughs> it's very deeply in the Nigerian culture. Um, but uh, I, I, when I was a child, like I had both of my parents are immigrants and my mom, English was not her native language. She didn't grow up, my mom didn't grow up speaking English. Mm-hmm. And so we would watch TV in the evenings and my dad would speak English in the house to my brothers and me and we would watch these comedy shows. And we would, my brothers and I would always be explaining the jokes to were our parents. Were you born in Nigeria? No, I actually was born in North Texas. I was born in Plano, Texas.
0: Oh, nice. Okay.
1: Yeah. So we would, but we would be explaining the jokes to my parents. Like, right. here's why Frasier is funny. Oh. Here's why. And I still remember my dad didn't let us watch The Simpsons because Bart said, eat my shorts. And he was like, why would he eat shorts? Like, <laughs> this is rude. Like, he's crass. <laughs> like, there are right. just so many things we weren't allowed to watch because sure. my parents didn't understand. So I think just as a child, I was so into joke structure and how comedy worked. And I also didn't quite get that TV was fictional. Like when I would see shows that had real people in them, I thought they were documentaries. Like I thought Boy Meets World was a show where they're following a kid around to school and I'm like, they could follow me and my friends, like why are they following him? And so it wasn't until later like middle school or high school when friends were like oh no all those names at the beginning like those were the writers of the show they wrote the episode and i was like for these kids you know and i was like it just took me i don't know why i was slow i don't know but it took me a while to kind of understand what script how scripted tv worked that these were all actors like that were performing and that they did takes and all of that because i come from completely outside of the industry Um, and I took my first, I really loved writing as a child, I was always really creative, I was in marching band, I played the flute for like 12 years, Mm -hmm. Um, loved music and performance in general, but I didn't take my first screenwriting class until my junior year in college, and that's when something kind of clicked for me.
0: What did you go into college wanting to do?
1: Well, what I told my parents I wanted to do was become a lawyer, maybe. (laughs) And by the time I had hit my senior year, they are like, we have seen zero LSATs. (laughs) Like, what is happening? And um, I had to kind of come clean and say, you know, I don't, I, I wanna do something with culture. I wanna do something crazy. Is there pressure
0: from, like, you know, a lot of immigrant parents tend to say you gotta become a doctor or a lawyer or a, you know. Like or a that. disappointment, R- yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: so that's uh, a joke that one of my favorite comedians, Yvonne Orji, who was on Insecure, uh-huh. yeah. um, she always says, you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disappointment. Right. And um, I went to Stanford, so right. my parents were like, here we go, you know, they're so excited. Right. And I was like, I think I wanna tell stories for, living and they're like what yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but that screenwriting class really unlocked something for me and I realized like screenwriting is like both right brain and left brain it's analytical but it's creative it kind of matched my flow yeah um like I'm I'm a child of immigrants I'm the only girl which means like you know second mom and also I'm a double Virgo like I love the details and all of it I just was really obsessed with screenwriting And as an introvert and a kid who always felt like an outsider, I was a big people watcher as a child. And so I just was seeing characters everywhere. I was seeing stories everywhere. And I wanted to write that, Um, yeah. What
0: surprised you, I mean, I know you said you you watched a lot of TV and, you know, I watched a lot of TV and and television shows. My my son loves Frasier, it's like his favorite show. I love Frasier. (laughs) <laughs> but he was like at the age of ten. It's his favorite show, yeah, you know, which is great. That. But uh, there is there is a there's a formula to some of these things, which is yeah. interesting. And yeah. when you took your screenwriters class, were you surprised to sort of see here's the formula to yes. how that works, like the man behind the curtain? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Because
1: uh, you know, I was ten when I was watching right. Frasier, and I was like, this is a phenomenal show. How right. did they do it? You know? Right. And then when you realize there's a structure to it and it's all learned, right. there's something where you're like, oh, it's not a mystery. Like, people just learn how to do it. I, too, can learn how to do it, you know? Right. And that's what that screenwriting class revealed to me. It's like, oh, a minute of a screenplay is a minute of on-screen content. Like, yep. you know, a scene has a button. There is a rule of threes. Like, right. hard consonants are funny. Like, yep. there are just certain rules. Comedy of opposites, rich son, poor dad, or right. working-class dad, you yep. know? Th- there are certain things that are just rules in comedy, and yep. once you learn them, you just play with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think it's amazing to sort of think about that because I think it, it actually transfers to almost everything, right? Mm-hmm. And our, like, painting has juxtapositions of yep. colors and complementary yep. colors and all those yeah. other things. So, uh, so, UK, so you took that class. What, what year was that? Was that your first year or second year? No, it
1: was my junior oh, year. Oh, junior year. It actually, it actually, I think, was spring quarter of my junior year. Okay. And I had done this um, kind of, like, Stanford and Hollywood week-long spring break trip. And okay. I was just like, oh, no, I've, I'm in the wrong major. Like, I was an American studies major and a French minor because I would studied abroad. <laughs> okay. And I was like, oh, no. And they had just started a film major, and I was sure. considering switching. And uh, one of the alums on the trip, I'll never forget, and she doesn't know how she impacted me, but her name was Danielle Lurie. Mm-hmm. And she was like, if you want to make films, don't you don't need to go to film school. Major in what you want to make films about. Right. Because anyone can pick up a camera. You learn by doing but you can't learn a voice, you know? Once you're in the world, that's the voice you have. You have to study something to learn a voice um, and to cultivate a voice. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna sign up for a fifth year (laughs) at this expensive school. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to graduate. I majored in American studies. That's the study of culture and history and communication.
0: I'm sure it's still useful. Which is (laughs) what TV is. (laughs) Yes, of course. So in
1: this weird way, I'm. Doing the thing that I went to school yep. for, which is really strange to say. Now, in terms of like actually getting the hours of writing, I opted to go to grad school. Like after I graduated from Stanford, I moved abroad for a while. Mm-hmm. I was working in um, for this nonprofit in Paris, uh, just outside of Paris, France, and mm-hmm. then I moved to Paris and started working for a production company that did short films and commercials. And yeah. and there was kind of a cap to how far I could move up because I was a foreigner, you know, and. I just realized I was like, I'm making this harder for myself. I love France so much, but mm. I was like, I'm making it harder for myself. I should just go to LA. Okay. <laughs> you know, I can work legally there. Right. And while I was in LA, I got a job in reality TV. Reality TV is not real, it's all fake stories. Sure. So I was coming up with stories for these reality shows. And around that point in my journey was when a friend was like, you seem really committed to writing, maybe you should try grad school.
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: and I was like, "Who's gonna pay for that?" And he's oh, like, "The government." Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> so so how did you get? How, where did you go?
1: I went to UCLA. Okay. Yeah, so I went to UCLA for grad school uh, for a couple years and did the TV track. And in my program, there were like twenty-five students in the program. There were ten who wanted to do television, and. Most of them wanted to do drama, and here I was like, I wanted to tell like vagina jokes, and like, <laughs> you know, I was just like, I want to make fun of things, and yep. so I felt like kind of not a film school kid, uh-huh. but it really got those 10,000 hours, you know, that um, uh, what's his name, Malcolm Gladwell, who's yeah. like, you get those 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, anything, yeah, yeah, and that's what film school did for me, so
0: right, okay. Yeah. Well, so so so, how did that how did did, did that company did it come to fruition? Did it basically get you your first job?
1: Yeah, more or less. So uh, when I left school, I will say like the ten thousand hours theory. I strongly believe it, and UCLA was very much like a quality quantity leads to quality type mm-hmm. of education. And I wrote, I did the TV and the film program simultaneously, so I was writing a feature and a TV. St- script every quarter, okay. got a lot of sleep. <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to get good at this. Like I was very committed. Sure. And when I graduated, I was burnt out because mm-hmm. grad school is exhausting and I kind of put all this pressure on myself to do almost like double the work. Um, so I was really burnt out. But I happened to submit one of my screenplays to a fellowship that gave um, like $20,000. Uh, the grand prize was $20,000. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing was like, um, I, I had to apply some of it to my education and then I kind of was like, how much can I live off of? How long until I need to get a job? Mm-hmm. And so I was living off of contest winnings and writing. Wow. And during that time, it was about six months that I was unemployed and just writing. Because most of the things I wrote in grad school were not good, you know? Sure. It's like you're getting your 10,000 hours out. Right, 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 But by the time that period was over, it was like December of, I want to say it was maybe 2011 or something, where I was sort of like, okay, I'm about to run out of money. Mm-hmm. I need to get a job, um, but now I have a portfolio. You know now I have a couple scripts that I can show people, and I've also honed the muscle of writing quickly. Sure. So I could write a spec script in two weeks, you know. And so I was kind of like, okay, I think I'm ready to get a job. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I had some friends who worked at um, agencies and management companies. I sent them my resume and started applying around and interviewing. And that was how I got my first like assistant job.
0: Okay. So, mm-hmm. what was your first job? At? What was your first show?
1: Yeah, I was working for Hillary Winston, who's an amazing showrunner mm-hmm. on a show that unfortunately didn't go. Okay. Called Happy Valley. Okay. But um, that show, it was great. Like, she let me into every part of the process. I found out how she chose new writers to hire. I started realizing, oh, they have an internet presence, or they've come from a program, or they went to grad school or they like, you know know somebody, or they've been an assistant before, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do all of those things. Right. I wanna make sure I'm someone who's undeniable, because especially like as a black woman, they wanna have a reason to say no. <laughs> They're like, okay. mm, I don't know if you're qualified, there's something about you that feels like you might not fit in here. So I was like, okay, I wanna make sure I've covered all my bases so no one can tell me no. Right. And um, from there, when her show didn't get picked up, she ended up recommending me to the showrunner of Happy Endings, which was a hit like comedy on abc yeah, run yeah. by jonathan groff and he hired me to be his assistant okay and i worked on that show for a year nice. and then from there i got my first staff job on the michael j fox show
0: oh that's amazing yeah 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 it was a journey
1: yeah <laughs> a lot of hard work but yeah i got
0: there amazing okay so 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 you you were then committed you're on tv you're, mm-hmm. you're for tv what what were some of the who are some of the mentors for you? Like, who are the ones that really sort of helped you out through that process?
1: Yeah, I would say in in reality, I think there's, um, there are two things that I really like to highlight about mentorship. There's mentors and there are advocates. Mentors are people who are like, let me show you the ropes, kid. Yeah. And advocates are people who are talking about you when you're not in the room, who are yeah. saying good things about you when you're not there. And I will say, I think because, I came across as like quite competent and accomplished, and double Virgo child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't receive a ton of mentorship. Um, But I did receive a lot of advocacy, and it was something that I was kind of like, oh, I don't have this like upper level writer that I'm like showing my scripts to and being like, help me, like, is this good? That wasn't happening a ton for me, but I was being spoken about when I was around. So I would take like meetings, staff meetings, and people would say, oh, I've heard about you from so many people. I've heard about you from this writer and this writer and this writer. Interesting. And that was so, I mean, it was wonderful to find that out because I wasn't sure where I measured up, Um, but... I think that also in Hollywood there's something that, I don't know what to call it, maybe it's almost like quiet mentorship where no one's like actually cracking open a script mm-hmm. and being like, here's where you put this joke, but they're letting you be in the room while they're doing their work. Yeah. So I very often was staying after work and watching amazing writers break their pilots and like come up with their stories and take notes calls. Right. And sometimes the writers would say like, oh, be on this notes call and take notes for us and I'd get to hear how they received the notes, how they interpreted the notes. Yep. So I was learning, you know? It was like this tacit mentorship. It wasn't like I was so much asking questions that they were answering, but I was absorbing. Sure. And um, that was truly the like amazing part of being in a writer's room before you're a writer, was being just so available to learn all of that. And even as a staff writer, I realized the pressure wasn't on me to save the show. So I could just watch other people save it (laughs) and learn. (laughs) So, yeah, that was sort of how mentorship worked for me. My first showrunner, I mean, not only Jonathan Groff and Hillary Winston were both amazing, but after them, the Michael J. Fox show was Sam, whoa, I just blanked on his name. (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay. after them on the Michael J Fox show was Sam Leiborn mm-hmm. um who's an amazing uh showrunner and so open and warm and so um uh very very generous with showing his process and giving and empowering me to run set even as a staff writer I produced two episodes of TV which is kind of unheard of as a staff writer right. um but yeah that those were really the people and then Wendy Calhoun was another writer who I deeply respect who I she had an independent writer's room because she was on a deal, and I sat in and took notes for her um, uh, a number of times, and I learned so much about that process as well. So these were people who, it was years later that I was like, oh, they really were kind of mentoring me, but not in the ways that you think a mentor Sure, operates. I know what you mean by
0: indirect mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly, it was like an indirect mentorship. Yeah, and so, just sit
0: behind and watch things happen. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting. But I mean, obviously, even you've done some amazing shows and you've done some incredible work. So do you Thank feel you. that there are people behind you that are watching you doing this kind of stuff? Are you paying it forward in that way? 100%. <laughs>
1: like, right. I, I feel like, uh, A, I feel like because I had so much access early in my career, um, I wanted to give that to other people. So I used to be someone who anyone would email and be like, can I pick your brain? And I'd be like, yeah, let's have a coffee. You know, and I used to do that a lot. Um, I kind of got burnt out on the coffees. And then I was like, oh, if I keep on having all these one-off coffees, I don't have time to do the thing that makes them want to have a coffee with me. You know, I don't have the time to write because I'm always, meeting right. up with people and talking about writing. Right. And so, one
0: coffee doesn't necessarily solve everything. No.
1: <laughs> and it's something that you don't know when you're starting out that someone can only show you their path. They can't mm-hmm. show you yours. Right. So so often people are like, how did you break in? And I'm saying, but are, there are these pathways that are not available to them um, right. in the same ways they were to me. Like I also worked in web series. Like I wrote for a very popular web series called Misadventures of Aqua Black Girl. I started a couple web series of my own and those were things that, at the time, it was like the nations of YouTube. So there, people eyes were there all the time. Yeah. So it was very easy. Not easy. It was not as difficult to have people notice your show. Sure. Um, so things have just changed. But what I have done in more recent years, because that spirit of mentorship was very strongly put in me, mm-hmm. um, just uh, a product of... of good education, I think, and being like, I want other people to be well educated. I ended up um, starting a mentorship program um, called Tribe. And the way that that started was really because I was doing all of these one-off coffees before the pandemic and was getting a little overwhelmed with being reached out to and reaching out to people and following up with people. And I was starting to keep like a grid of mentees. And I was like, this is becoming a lot. Like, how do I make this easier on myself Mm -hmm. and also more productive to them? And then the pandemic hit and the world shut down and we were all in the house. And Mm -hmm. then in the summer of 2020 came, um, you know, the racial upheaval of the murder of George Floyd. And a lot of black creatives were reaching out to me being like, should I still be doing this? Like, do my stories even matter if this is what is happening in the streets of America? And I realized, oh, I want these people to meet each other. They can't just know me because- And 100%
0: they're more relevant than ever.
1: Yes, 100%, (laughs) more relevant than ever, exactly. And and I think that the burden of that pain is lessened when you have community Mm -hmm. to um, uh, share it with and to uh, exercise it with you um exorcise it (laughs) with you right you know get it out of you um and so i started tribe in the pandemic and um really brought together a group of like writers that i was independently mentoring and said what if we build something together what if we start doing monthly panels um what are the things you feel like you're missing in your writing education independent the independent education you've been doing how can i support you and I found that there was really a mix of what I call hard skills and soft skills. Okay. Hard skills are, how do I write an outline? Soft skills are, how do I deal with narcissists? Both are necessary in Hollywood. Yep. <laughs> so I started this program where we were kind of toggling back and forth between the two. We would do a session on a hard skill, like here's how I structure a rewrite on a script. Then we do a session on a soft skill, like here's how I take a notes call. And we'd go back and forth and... Through that process, thankfully, I was under a deal at HBO and uh, got to renew my deal and hired an executive. And um, that executive and I decided let's, okay, let's start reading their material, let's see what we can produce out of this group of writers. And we chose uh, two scripts that, or three scripts that we really loved. Sorry, let me go back. Mm-hmm. We chose three scripts that we really loved, and of them, um, of those three, decided can we make proof of concept short films for these scripts? Okay. Um, so that we can at least put them before Hollywood and say, like, here's product of these great writers that y'all don't know yet that we know and we're investing in, right. and they come with our stamp of approval. Do you want to get to know them? Um, so two of them I've self-funded, and the third one we need funding. The strike hit. I need funding, (laughs) we all need funding, writers need to be paid. Um, So yeah, but I self-funded these films. So that's how I've continued to give back is through this program, through the Short Film Initiative, and by continuing to pour into the writers that um, I've, I've gotten to know over the years and really build a network that hopefully will continue to change Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, so it's almost sort of like you started your own little sort of small school, right? In yeah, a lot of a ways, bit. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. great because you took all these things that you learned and you said, okay, instead of trying to help people one on one, let's help all help each other.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it sh- it shares the burden, you know. Sure. Um, because it is difficult to be everything to one person. Yep. Um, and it also, I think, the only way that this industry changes is by investing in compassionate creatives of color and compassionate creatives in general and i say compassionate instead of passion because a lot of people have passion but Mm -hmm. a lot of people are passionate and awful to other people they're passionate about their art and then they take it out on the people they work for and i say compassionate because i want artists who care about people as much as the art and that is not a learn you're either a compassionate person or you're not so it's it's i always think of that adage like you can't teach people to be good to people it has to be something you want to (laughs) do so for me with my writing program i am really intentional intentional about selecting writers who have that compassionate streak in them already and i'm like you just might need a little more community, or might need a little more hard skills training, or might need a little more soft skills training. But mm-hmm. you're already compassionate, so let's give you that next, that last little alley-oop that starts your career. Right. Um, and I hope to get to keep doing that even after the strike ends. Um, that's the goal.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm interested, actually. You know, I'm interested in your position on, on. You know, obviously Hollywood is changing, and we can talk mm-hmm. about the strike if you want to. But. Uh, I'm more interested in, I have a feeling that Hollywood is going to be a very different place. Yeah. It needs yeah. to be. It, be. <laughs> it yeah. needs to it needs a. It needs a, a complete shake-up shake of the etch-a-sketch, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, what, is, what are your thoughts? What does the new Hollywood look like to you? Where do you it? I, mean,
1: yeah, I don't know if I have the answer. Um, well, but, what would you
0: like it to look like?
1: What I would like it to look like is um, a refocus on art. I think what we're seeing right now because of all of this vertical integration and the um you know because the fincin laws in the 90s have been taken away and now all of these companies are becoming like these behemoths that price fix and and change how consumers yeah i
0: mean it used to be they had to make a law to separate Exactly. Uh, theaters from studios. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And that law doesn't exist anymore. Right. And they literally, uh, the last round of FinCEN, I believe, was, um, I don't know the word, I want to say like obliterated, but that right. sounds so big, but was taken away during the pandemic. They were like, hey, America, do you mind if we get rid of this? No? Okay, it's gone. Right. And I'm like, but we were all going through it with a capital IT that right. there were, no one was paying attention. And so... Now, there's no one, the creative core of Hollywood has shifted. And now it's like, what does Wall Street think? What do the investors say? What does the board think? Will it sell overseas? Does it, you know, is it marketable? Does the algorithm say, you know? And I'm like, what happened to the creative core of like, this story moves me and we're going to take a chance. Sure. Like, let's take a chance because most things fail. Most businesses fail. Most restaurants fail. Most startups fail. Most things fail. But somebody has to take a chance. And Hollywood used to subsist on a chance being on creativity, a gut feeling that told me this would work. Now it was flawed, right? Sure. Because there were a group of a a monochrome group of gentlemen who ran Hollywood. Yeah, and but people
0: people who would pick scripts were people who actually knew if it was going to work or not, not a lawyer.
1: Yes, (laughs) yes, not an algorithm. Right. You know, and so uh, I don't, you know, I'm not, like. I think that AI is here to stay. It's already here, you know. So well, I'm We're going like, to get into AI. Let's yeah, yeah, let's yeah. let's <laughs> because
0: uh, I, I definitely want to talk to you about that <laughs> for a little bit. But I do want to think about I want to talk before we get into the AI part of it. I do want to think about self-distribution. Like mm. what do you think about self-distribution? You already mentioned yeah. putting stuff on YouTube, right? Yeah. Now YouTube is becoming a studio much faster than anything yeah. else. And yeah. that's a, it's much more in your own control of that right. system. Right. What do you think about that
1: well the thing that's crazy is YouTube remember what YouTube read like when they were yeah, like we're yeah. gonna get into TV too
0: didn't work no
1: I, <laughs> here's the thing I wonder did it not work or did they realize they're making more money not doing that
0: that's because yeah this is more expensive to do that
1: yes <laughs>
0: well, why like, are we doing this everyone just, else everyone else is doing it for us right
1: yes I'm like, wait cat videos mm-hmm. make more money than a set in a uh, Calabasas mm-hmm. with 12 yes. actors, uh, one of whom is hungover. Like, you know, it's like, we can make more money just putting your shit back out there, right. <laughs> so. But to, there's some
0: really mm-hmm. good stuff on YouTube. Oh, 100%, 100%,
1: yeah. and the, so to me, it's like the fact that Amazon and Apple were like, we'd like to play TV, to me is like very frustrating, because I'm like, you don't need this to be a thriving business, right. when you came in here and fucked it up for all of us, Sure. Um. but then here's YouTube, that is like, oh, we could have done that, and we're like, nah. And I'm like, I love, I respect that. I'm like, yes, right. that they're like, nah, never mind. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. Right. <laughs> it sucks for the people who had development on YouTube Red and friends who were execs there. But, sure. You know, but going back to the idea that um, there is so much money in making quality, con- entrusting individual creatives to make quality content for YouTube, right. that has been very lucrative for Google. Yeah. And when you see uh, the numbers change, the strike happened and more people did not turn on Paramount Plus or Netflix and say, let me see what's in the deep hallways of Netflix. No, <laughs> people were like, okay, let me cancel my subscription and watch Get Ready With Me videos on YouTube and TikTok. Right. You know, a TikTok viewership, I think the statistic was has gone up seventy percent since sure. the strike. Yeah. I'm like, hey, legacy studios, get back in here yeah. <laughs> if you wanna have a future at all. Because yeah. you're losing
0: to TikTok. But I think what's also interesting is that there was I mean, this it's such a perfect storm in a way. Mm-hmm. Because you have the studios were doing the same thing over and over. Might as well have been written by an AI, you know, like all the superhero films. Like Marvel fatigue, Marvel fatigue was (laughs) happening big time, right? And then the then the (laughs) pandemic happened, and then no one went to the theaters, right, for a long time. And then I just think it's just there's not then the strike happens, and I think that there's there's going to be a uh, something that just needs to shift, right? And it happened in the '60s, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Where yeah. the, the writers basically said, you know, or, or the studio said, oh, we, I guess people don't want to watch Westerns anymore. Yeah. And that led to Easy Rider, right? Mm-hmm. And that led to The Godfather and to mm-hmm. Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be, like, my theory yeah. <laughs> is that everything, everywhere, all at once is the Taxi Driver or, or is the Easy Rider of today. Oh, that's interesting. Like some... St- the The people that are like let's figure out how to make this thing happen on our own yeah. and then we'll do that what, do you, what are your thoughts on that
1: well I, I want that to be right i do think that like film is still extremely expensive and even oh, though yeah. we can talk about everything everywhere all at once and how they quote unquote filmed it on their own let's not belie the fact that the Daniels were extremely successful commercial directors sure. for a very long time. So it's like they, they they had the resources. But they knew
0: how to do it. They, they knew, knew how it. to do
1: it. And so I'm like, I, I think it's incredible what they did. I sure. fucking love that movie. I think it's so, I remember watching it and just being like, what did I just
0: see? Yeah. And
1: to see something purely original again was so exciting. Yep, And it did cost a pretty penny, But I am here wondering like, in a world where we have like virtual production studios and and uh, green screen is now entirely like dated concept, mm-hmm. you know, um, maybe there's a world in which we can see more things of scale and scope at a smaller price tag, at a lower price tag. Um,
0: yes, eventually, yeah. um, it's you know everything starts off expensive and gets cheaper over time. Yeah. Uh, new technology, more yeah, specifically. Yeah, of course. Interesting, I'm actually working on virtual production yeah. technology myself, oh, that's cool. so, so my, my feeling that's exciting about virtual production technology is mm-hmm. that directors and filmmakers, as, yeah. as, as you're aware, must have been so frustrated when they shoot something all on green screen and it's say, good luck, we'll see it in nine months. You know, yeah. That's horrible for a filmmaker, yeah. to be able to put it on screen and then it's on the actual screen itself you have direct feedback, then you, right. that idea of I hate CGI comes, oh, it's my CGI. Like, I have control over this. Yeah. It's, what, it's my, my kind of career. So I'm hoping that we get to put filmmaking back in the power of filmmakers. I hope so.
1: Yeah. I hope so. I mean, I wouldn't say that the Marvel movies are proving that you know, because a lot of. <laughs> I heard a joke. I have a
0: feeling they just put really good named directors in it and then they don't really give them any control over what they're doing. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard a few jokes about how Marvel movies are made and the length of the scripts. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, there's just a lot to be said about how much is constructed in post. Yeah. Um, and that, but I think, like.
0: Out of the hands of the filmmakers. Right.
1: <laughs> and so what I'd love is a return to filmmaking. And the Daniels have, like, shown that that can happen, and so has Greta Gerwig, and so has uh, Christopher Nolan. Like they've shown that like, when you actually believe in filmmaking, audiences will show up.
0: Absolutely, I mean, I'm gonna go from the full gamut of those things, because this summer was a very interesting, like back to the movies summer, right? And you have things, you know, you have things uh, like, like Barbie, or or everything everywhere obviously, but Barbie is in, in. Really interesting way how that just right culturally became a phenomenon not yeah. expected right not obviously expected. Nolan They they worked in pair which was crazy right, to have right. Oppenheimer that way But then you also look at Avatar which cost a bazillion dollars, mm-hmm. but still was a great film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So and you can have all so much money and so you can have it you don't doesn't mean that you have to make it cheaper to make it better You just yeah. have to make a good movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly and I I do think that like even though you know the argument can be made that all three of those movies are kind of based on IP at this point, because Avatar is past Avatar, sure. Barbie is Mattel, and and Oppenheimer is based on the real life of John right. Oppenheimer, sure. but they were all crafted by filmmakers who put their own spin. Yeah. And to me, when I saw Barbie, I was like, Yeah, that's not the Barbie, Gre-
0: yeah, that's not the Barbie this film. This is movie.
1: a Greta Gerwig movie <laughs> that happens to have a doll in it. You yeah. know, I'm like, that was what was amazing is like, I know that the lay person isn't over here being like, Oh, Greta Gerwig, I want to see that movie. Most people are like, Barbie, I want to see Barbie. Yeah. But still, the conversation, the cultural conversation is because of how Barbie was interpreted yes. by this filmmaker.
0: Right. And, how she honestly having seen it a couple times now with my mm. with my daughter how she balances uh the corporate, I'm sure those meetings must have been so hard. Oh my god. The corporate meetings with Mattel. Can oh you imagine?
1: God. I heard a story. <laughs> it, it was such a great story because there's a part in the movie, spoiler, there's a part in the movie, <laughs> you should have seen it. Um, where uh the young girl like talks down to Barbie and is like, Oh, yeah. you are the problem with society and you shouldn't have friends and you're a fascist and whatever. And she right. says all these horrible things to Barbie. Sure. And Mattel, apparently, in this article I read, were very upset about that. They were like, We can't have that. And Greta was like, We're shooting it tomorrow and they sent a Mattel like exec all the way to set to like show up and be like you can't shoot this right and then he showed up and they were shooting it Mm -hmm. and you see this girl saying this to Margot Robbie and Mm. Margot Robbie just like drooping and drooping and drooping and getting sad and the exec in the article was like I was embarrassed that I tried to stop it because when I saw how it worked.
0: What it was supposed to be.
1: What it was supposed to be, I realized that it was a necessary conversation. That's amazing. And I'm like, wow, how great to be the first Mattel movie. Right. Because none of the other ones are going to work this way.
0: <laughs> no, no, you're not. Yeah, you're not. Because gonna... now
1: they're like, the world wants Mattel movies. And I'm like, wrong lesson. Yeah. The world wants Greta Gerwig movies. The world wants filmmaker movies. The world wants original stories. Please take the correct lesson from
0: them. Well, actually, that, what will be uh. interesting is if they don't necessarily take the right. And they're like, oh. We were wrong, you know, yeah. I don't know. We're I would stopping, love that, yeah. instead they're
1: gonna go, oh, the person we hired wasn't <laughs> right.
0: Or, yeah, or, or we, sh- we, we released it on March, which we should never which done Which we much. never should have done, that's our bad. Yeah, I hear you. Unfortunately. Yeah. But anyway, it's really, really interesting. Now I do, I, I overheard you, I hate to say I overheard you uh, this morning talking about AI with someone at breakfast, and I was (laughs) about to jump into this, and I was like, no, 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 I'm going to save it for the podcast, I'm going to save it for the podcast. (laughs) Uh So uh, I have been, uh, my podcast deals with all kinds of stuff creative, obviously we Mm -hmm. don't just talk about CG, but we do talk a lot about computer graphics Mm -hmm. and what I do, and uh, there's a lot of concept artists out there that I talk to, a lot of them actually old uh, THU alumni who I love dearly, but there's a lot of concern about how AI is hurting them as uh, artists, how it's not, uh, yeah. some of them are worried about them scraping their art, et cetera, specifically yeah. because of the generative stuff that's going on. How, <clears throat> f- from a writer's perspective, mm-hmm. what are the, sim- like, how are how is the similarities between the, the, those conversations happening in writer circles right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say as it relates to the strike, I'll speak to that first, that I didn't realize when we were going into the strike that, Um, AI was going to be such a huge concern, Mm. you know? It wasn't until we heard what um, the response was from the AMPTP that a lot of us writers realized, oh, this is a strike about technology. Like, a lot of us didn't know. Um, uh, And it felt like, ah, it'll be a strike about residuals again, you know? And then it was like, oh, oh, they want to replace us, they don't want us, Uh Mm uh-oh. And for me, I think, it's not there yet. Like AI can't replace a human mind. Like I believe in uncanny valley. Like visual uncanny valley means like you'll see a robot and there will always be something. I know something what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That tells you that's not a person. Yeah. I think the same thing exists in written word. And I think sure. that there's sort of just like line that yeah. AI can't cross. And yet my worry is because of the occasion of Hollywood that eventually, even though it can't cross that line, consumers will decide it's okay. Good enough. It'll good enough or not that bad, you know. They'll say, "Well, I just need something to put on while I'm doing my laundry. This will do, pig," you know. And I'm like, "That's
0: (laughs) so." Well, let's let's discuss that for a little bit because the people, the thing that people watch when they do their laundry is Mm -hmm. a show they've already seen before, not a new show, Mm -hmm. right? I don't
1: know if that's true.
0: I watch a lot of Seinfeld when I do laundry. Yeah, I watch a lot
1: of Netflix when I do laundry. (laughs)
0: Yep, but that's on Netflix. You know,
1: but I'm saying I watch. Really? Netflix shows are... New shows? Yeah. Or like uh, I just crappy like, shows? Yeah. I'm like, here's the thing. Net- I always say Netflix, and here's, I'm going to say I love Trader Joe's. It's one of my favorite stores Absolutely to shop it. at. Yep. But like everything at Trader Joe's kind of tastes like Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. Everything at Starbucks kind of tastes like Starbucks. Mm-hmm. You get a scone, you get a sandwich, you get a wrap, it all kind of tastes like Starbucks. Right. That's Netflix. Right. Everything at Netflix kind of looks like Netflix, right. kind of sounds like Netflix. The actors are all kind of Netflix cast. It's like... Netflix. Sure. And so to me, you go to Netflix not because it's new and novel and bright and cool, you go because it's familiar no matter what you're watching.
0: Right. (laughs) We used to joke about that. Uh, I had a a couple friends of mine We were huge cinephiles and was like, you know, when you're like, it's like, Saturday afternoon, are you going to watch Sophie's Choice or Overboard?
1: Part, <laughs> yeah, are you, are you going to watch Succession or are you going to watch Selling Sunset, you know? Right. And so, I turn on new shit on Netflix to watch, right? Because I need some noise in the room, yes. You know, I've stopped doing it in the strike, I'm like, I'm striking Netflix, you know? So, I'm sure. like, I don't really watch Netflix, I don't really turn it on that much, okay. Um, these days, but I'll say I've now been like a show seeker, like a heat seeker. I wait until there's a cultural conversation about a thing and then I go towards that show, right? You know, um, so. I don't really watch Netflix these days, but right. when I do, it's usually when I'm flying because it's still the best app to download and watch. HBO, get on it, get better.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: Amazon, Hulu, get on it, get better. <laughs> but Netflix I, yeah. is still the best to watch when you fly. Sure. So I tend to like pick a show and then download it. Actually,
0: I, I watch HBO shows when I'm on. Yeah.
1: Mine, yeah. My app won't work on planes. I'm like, I wish I could watch uh, HBO the down- You
0: can't do the download. Version.
1: You have to download? You have to start it before you take off.
0: Oh if, yeah, If yeah, the yeah, plane yeah, takes yeah.
1: off, it's like, where are you? No, and yeah, I'm yeah like, no, no. On. You have to. I, I
0: have to plan it. It's Come the night on. before I download everything. Exactly. Yeah. But
1: Netflix, I'm like, you can download it, and then on the plane, just turn it on, and it's working. Right. And so I'm like, they've got everybody beat in the tech department. Like Netflix has everybody beaten. The they tech were the
0: first. To, they, they were the first ones. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I'm like, they've they've got it all beat. But um, in terms of content, I think because Netflix spits out so much, Starbucks. Mm -hmm. I think we as a society go, this coffee's not that bad. And then we just keep on drinking that coffee. So when they slowly start replacing all of their content with AI, we'll go, well, it kind of tastes like Netflix. And we'll be fine with it. And so to me, the threat of AI is less that it will replace people, but it's almost like uh, WALL-E or or Idiocracy, where we'll just become fine with it not replacing people, with it being kind of good enough, kind of not
0: that bad. I think... But but every now and then you'll have the Greta Gerwicks or the Daniels then, make something and they're like, bigger. wait a minute, yeah. I don't have to settle for Netflix.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's I think that's what's going to happen. Okay. You know. And so I think at this point when the strike was starting, there was a lot of like, oh my God, AI is going to replace us. And now I'm like, no, it's, it can't. No, it's not.
0: Well, what about us? What about you? Yeah. Using AI tools, yeah. what do you think about that?
1: Well, I'll say I'm a late adopter in all ways. Like sure. I still have an iPhone like thirteen, <laughs> you know. So I I am always slow to adopt. So I could see AI being helpful, and I've heard I have writer friends who're like I use it to help like generate names for characters, you know. Right. And I've been like a child born in nineteen eighty five in this city. What would they be named, you know? Right. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. But I also think. There's a period when you're breaking a show called blue sky where you're coming up with a new idea for a show Now I don't know if every uh, showrunner uses this term But it's something that on the shows I've worked on we call it blue sky where it's like clear no clouds Anything can be right right because you're coming up with it During that blue sky period you and a bunch of writers in a room talking about a new idea or concept and there are no rules I used to have a showrunner um, who someone would say something about a character, like, maybe these two characters would get together and blah, blah, blah. And I would very quickly, just because my mind is kind of quick on the story sense, I would Mm. go, well, that won't work because this and this and this, and then that would happen and then that won't work, so we can't do it. And my boss would go, Amy, it's blue sky. You don't know what won't work in a vacuum. We have to play. And I'd right. be like, oh, we're wasting our time. Like, don't we wanna to get to the solution? And then he'd be like, you you don't know what's gonna work. So then we talk about it, we try and make it work. Yeah. We do all these things. Everything goes. And eventually I'd be right, it right. would work. But all of the conversations we had to get to realizing that it didn't work opened up all of these new avenues of thought, new ideas for stories and new ways we can go. And to me, AI is skipping those conversations. So I don't see myself using AI in a writer's room because talking to people is what makes all those other pathways. Trying to force something to work that doesn't work is what opens up all this creativity that I never wanna lose. Like that, you never know what kernel you're going to come up with because you walk down a broken road that you're gonna actually use later to fix something else.
0: But isn't that the fear that basically executives would use an AI to generate a rough script based on an algorithm of what they said is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're gonna ask you to fix it.
1: <laughs> yeah, they will, and then they'll pay a day rate and yeah. say, you fix it for a day, oh, you didn't do it, next writer. You fix it for a day, right. oh, you didn't do it, next writer. And then eventually, blah, 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 blah they have Netflix. You right. know, I'm like, at the end of the day, something will generate out of that process. Right. Will we like it, or will it be Starbucks? <laughs> right. There is much better coffee than Starbucks, but Starbucks fucking works. Right. So to me, I'm like, Yes, that is going to happen. That is what they want to happen. It will happen. And we still need Greta. Right. We still need Nolan. Mm-hmm. We still need Ryan Coogler. Right. <laughs> like we still need people who have original thought right. um, to balance that out. Because as a society, we might be consuming Doctor Strange and the multiverse with Spider-Man and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. But we also want Barbie. Sure. Both are going to exist. And so that helps me be like, maybe a little less scared, quite disappointed, but a little less scared than the future, because we're already there. Right. There are already 12 Marvel movies and 19 versions of spider We're already there. Just we're subbing s- an eye to write still, we're, we're already there.
0: <laughs> we're still making Star Wars stuff. Yeah. 50 years later. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so we're kind of already there. Yeah. It's just now we're going to be loud about it was a machine. Right. As opposed to, like... It was 19 writers hired over 12 different pay periods. Yeah. That none I mean, of them I don't think we can
0: it. stop it from happening. Though. No, it's yeah. happening. Yeah. It's here. Yeah.
1: So I I, I am not like I'm mean, I don't I can't correctly say I'm anti AI. I drink okay. Starbucks too. You sure. know, so I'm like I'm not anti Starbucks. I just also like Black and Bold Coffee, which is a black owned brand right. that is only for sale in certain areas. You know, mm-hmm. like I I. When I'm in a hurry, I drink Starbucks. When right. I care, I drink Black and Bold. Yeah. Every morning, I brew black, black and Bold. When I'm traveling, I drink Starbucks. Right. So I think that's what it's gonna become. When I'm traveling, I watch Netflix. Right. Full
0: circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's that's amazing. Um, uh, okay. I do. Before we, we, we go too far, I want to make sure we talk about some of the great stuff that you've done, right? Well, you. So you talked about yeah. tribe. What are you've um, also have your own production company? Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's called Super Special. Yeah. Um, and the idea came from uh, the opposite of being superficial is being your most authentic self. Super okay. special. And we want to tell stories that make people of color feel good. That put us in moments of joy. We can be edgy. We can be subversive. We can be edgy. We can be subversive, but we're not going to land in a place of loss or or defeat. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that's really important to me. I think like you know a lot of the uh, tragic stories and trauma porn that are often depicted of uh, people who look like me is, is still valid art. I just want to live in spaces where we can experience joy.
0: Yeah, where
1: we can win. Um, so that's what we do at our company. We have a number of projects in development. Thankfully, pre-strike, we had a deal with HBO. Hopefully, you know um, that relationship can continue um, after the strike and we'll continue to develop our projects there. And then in Features, we have different uh, pathways with, or sorry, we have different relationships with different um, other production companies in Hollywood where we're developing different projects. Um, I'm writing some original things too, that I'm really excited
0: about, so. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Well, I think it's really exciting. I think, you know, doing your own production company and uh, is really cool. Do you feel responsibility to support women and people of color and and all of that as well?
1: I mean, responsibility is a funny word. Like it is a responsibility, but I I sometimes, (laughs) yeah, I kind of call it a beautiful burden because I'm sort of like, yeah, it's my responsibility, but it's also all I care about. So I'm like, it's, it's, I don't believe in a future where there's like only black content. Like I want our content to look like our world. Sure. I want to see everyone represented. Um, and all of my stories involve um, quite uh, multicultural worlds because that's how I was raised, that's the environment I grew up in, that's my friend circle. So to me, it's something that I don't have to make a conscious effort to do because right. it's just who I am. Um, So, yes, a responsibility in that sometimes other projects come my way that don't involve things uh, that I am passionate about. And therefore, I'm like, this is a great idea, but it's just not for me. Like, I'm not the writer for this. And it feels bad sometimes to say no to things that I like, but just don't need me. You know, and I want to write things that need me. I want to write characters that couldn't have life breathed into them without me. Yeah. Um, and that comes from writing my own unique experience and directing that too, like working with actors who um, I, I want to direct to portray those unique experiences as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's great. I mean, I love, I'm mean, watching Insecure is really wonderful because to me, it's, I'm a white male, right? Yeah. And so being, being uh, opening the door for me to see what it's like mm-hmm. to be a black woman yeah. is, and making it super funny, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> you know? I love a good <laughs> vagina joke. It's really good, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I love I love I love what you've done and being yeah. able to opportunity because you know sometimes some people feel like they only want to see their perspective. Yeah, and I think it's great for it to be open on something like HBO for you to see someone else's perspective, right? Yeah, so.
1: and to tell a universal story. Because right. at the end of the day, Insecure is about a girl who is turning thirty and having imposter syndrome yep. and growing pains and like. Midlife or quarter life crisis shit, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, should I stay with this man? Should I stay in this uh, job? Like, that's very relatable. She just looks different and has some, uh, you know, slang that uh, some of the HBO audience was, it was new to them. You know? Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And I think you're absolutely right. It's like, oh, wait, she is just like me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love. Just like when I watch, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, right. like Issa has said this, where it's like, you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm it's like, I love these stories. Like, yeah. I'm, like I'm like, sometimes I feel like Larry David. Well, yeah, it's yeah. just like, that's great. Yeah. It's like, there's so many shows like that. It's, I, I love shows that make it effortless, that it's like about a core human emotion that anyone can relate to. And now we're just gonna sprinkle it with some real things, some real texture that makes it specific and through that specificity actually breed a universal new language.
0: Of yes. experience you know awesome 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 okay now before we go I do want to have you talk about your podcast you also have as well and that's gotten yeah. a lot of success so you're a podcaster too yeah so tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah so another thing bred out of the pandemic mm-hmm. um, my friend Grace Edwards and I we both were writers on Insecure and when Insecure was ending it was like the height of the pandemic, and it was like, how do we do something, A, where we're working together again, but then also it felt like every week there was more bad news, you know? It was just like so many terrible things happening in the world, and one day she said to me, I think she was like, you're my antidote, I feel like talking to you makes me feel better about the world, and I was like, you're my antidote! Like, right. literally having this community, this space to be like, oh, the world is shit, the world is a dumpster fire, how do we get better? Right. Um, Really just helped us, and we were like, is this a thing? Is this a thing? And we kind of realized it was like to be able to say like, okay, what's our antidote this week? And we made it more intentional. Like we actually made an effort to say every week we have to do something that is selfishly just for us, just self care, sure. that isn't about work, that is just about feeling good and share it with each other and have guests on to talk about their antidotes too. So yeah, that's where the antidote was bred um, product of APM studios. We wrapped season yep. one a couple months ago. Yeah. um yeah really proud of how it turned out 40 episodes so go back and listen <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of
0: stuff yep. yeah
1: a lot of really great guests from tracy ellis ross to um Grace and on there. yes exactly <laughs> it's like really great guests so awesome. all talking about their antidotes
0: that's so awesome well that was really wonderful and amy thank you so much for sharing your your, uh, your, your story you. with us that's and right. and for uh your amazing success and uh for being here in in (laughs) in kaga city to talk about all this stuff and being able to share your story is really a passionate thing i'm really grateful i'm very excited about where you go from here i have a feeling that you are not only going to be very successful but you're going to help a lot of people be successful as well so
1: (laughs) that is my only hope is to you know build bridges for future storytellers that's the thing that really makes my heart beat so Awesome. I hope you are right. right. Your, your lips to God's ears is what <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.